What does Jesus say it means to be a disciple? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you focus on the gospel in every area of your life and ministry. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dombozik. So, Brian, I am super psyched today, and let me tell you why. We are studying one of my favorite passages of Scripture. How many favorite passages do you have? Um, I have quite a few, but probably not as many as you. Okay, okay. So, I just love Jesus more, apparently. Apparently. That's fine. That's fine. You know? Um, I mean, I really like Lamentations. Um, <laughs> See, that's not on my list. <laughs> so, I don't love Jesus more. We just love him differently. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I like fashionably sad Jesus. Thank you. And... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, before we get ourselves in trouble, because, uh, you know, we have a rule on every podcast I'm involved with, which is don't get fired. That's an um, easy enough rule, but it, we push the line far sometimes, too often. Sometimes. That joke might have done it. But uh, <laughs> but no, this is a um, one of the reasons why I love this passage so much is how it all works together to point us to the gospel. And um, so we've got a lot to discuss today together um, as we work through this, because what we're actually going to talk about today is, is we're going to, we're going to try to give a bit, basically a flyover of the entire three chapters, the entire discourse there. Um, there's some stuff that we are going to skip over, but we're trying to hit some of the, we're trying to hit a lot of the core big themes. Um, unfortunately, we're going to skip over um, everyone's favorite verse when they're sinning, don't judge. Judge lest you be judged, or judge not lest. So have we um, have we stated clearly that we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount? I think we did. I thought we did. I don't know if we did. So just in case we haven't. Surprise. We're talking about you, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, if you haven't picked up on it, this was not a quiz. <laughs> but we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, either again that you hear it or for the first time. That's right. That's right. So uh, with that said, how about we set up the context of the Sermon on the Mount today? Yeah, well, like many passages that we encounter in the Gospels, uh, we cannot be really strongly definitive of when this took place. I think uh, it's safer to put this near the middle uh, of Jesus's ministry. Um, if it was early, we know that it's far enough along that Jesus had some followers. Uh, people were recognizing him uh, for what he was teaching and doing. So it's not immediately up front. We can kind of rule that out. And it's probably not toward the very tail end. So it's probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, Thomas and Gundry and their harmony in the gospel, uh, they kind of anchor this near maybe two-thirds of the way through uh, Jesus' ministry. So the latter of the half point, if you will, of his ministry. But again, what we do know, while we can't definitively pinpoint it, we do know, again, some time has passed because Jesus is known throughout the area, Syria, Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, all the area has heard of him, so he's done some traveling. And that's why the great crowds are starting to follow him wherever he goes. And so in light of that, he goes up onto a mountain, uh, probably near Capernaum, and he's going to deliver this, this discourse, this Sermon on the Mount, one of his five major discourses that we can find in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is uh, a book that is structured together linking these discourses, these major teachings of Jesus. And this is one of them, of course. 
uh, where Jesus will teach this. We know this is not the only time that Jesus would have taught this content because we have the Sermon on the Plain as well, which is very similar content to the Sermon on the Mount. That should not be surprising that Jesus would teach something similar, even very similar in different contexts, because again, remember, he's traveling around. Uh, so whoever heard it here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 may not have been the same ones if he taught this again similar somewhere else. So um, it shouldn't be surprising or troubling or anything if we encounter that Jesus taught similar things repeatedly, like teaching the disciples how to pray several times, for example, because they were kind of uh, slow to understand some things and needed it as we are. So that's kind of the context of this wonderful sermon that we could spend a lot of time mining for its riches. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just thinking about that dating thing, one of the things that is is interesting, the more you explore the Gospels, the more you you start to realize that really, for the most part, most of the events that are that are in them are kind of taking place in that mid to later point in his ministry. There's actually very, very little that is like you get some broad strokes kind of stuff that's happening at the beginning. Um, but you kind of get these summary, these summary pieces. And part of the reason for that is, is that um, the gospel writers knew kind of what the core of the core of the core was. And they all had this point of showing you um, really leading you into the, the, that final week of his ministry where he actually went to Jerusalem, was crucified, died and rose again. Um, That's the point of the point of the point. And so there's so much stuff that we just don't know about his ministry, but we know the most important things. And, and it's just a, it's just a a really powerful structural thing that um, as storytellers, our, our gospel writers have done for us um, and helping us keep the main thing, the main thing. So um, with all of that said, um, there are a lot of questions that we should be asking whenever we study the Sermon on the Mount, whenever we study Matthew 5 through 7. Um, and the first one of those really is, uh, is the big question, which is what led off this episode, which is how does Jesus describe a disciple? What does he say it means to be a disciple? And we see, we see that principally in the first 16 verses of chapter 5 Jesus does two things he describes our identity and he and he describes our impact so first he says that we are blessed and we see this in the beatitudes um one of the things that we need to understand when we look at the Beatitudes is that what Jesus isn't doing when he says, you know, blessed are, um, you know, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who who long for the kingdom, those who are poor in spirit, and, and on and on and on. What he's not doing is he's not describing separate groups of people. There, these are it's so it's not saying some people who are his disciples are poor in spirit, some are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, some are peacemakers, but not all of them. Um, these are supposed to be defining characteristics of what happens in uh, two people who are transformed by the gospel. Ultimately, these are the fruit of the new birth itself, people who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, given a, given a new heart and new desires, these are the things that they want. And so people who are born again are blessed. 
And, and, and that's, that's really important for us to remember. And as we go through this, this passage and, and particularly as we think about how we apply this when we are discipling others. Um, so thinking about that impact side though, too, remember he calls us salt and light. We see that in, in verses 13 through 16. And so this is really the defining call of God's people. So we are to be, uh, our presence in the world is to be an influence for the gospel. So that's that salt context. I mean, you, you know, you have that preserving aspect of it. There's lots of interpretations around that. That's, that's one of the more common ways to describe it. Um, but, uh, so there's that side of it. Then you've also got, um, our presence in the world is a witness to the gospel. So, um, that's, that's really the intent of light is people are supposed to see and hear and know who God is and see his glory and give glory to him because of his people being in the world. Salt and light both, uh, have the, this power to overcome and overwhelm anything else. You know, uh, when you cook, for example, you always have to be careful about putting too much salt in because man, as soon as you do, there's just no one doing it. It's just, it will take over. It can ruin a dish like nothing. Um, and you, it's hard to balance it out. Once you put too much salt in, it's not like, Hey, let me balance that out and put something else in. It will dominate, mm-hmm. uh, what you taste a light. For example, you don't walk into a light room and turn on darkness and it overcomes that light. It's the other way around. You can have a dark room and any, any bit of light will penetrate and overcome that darkness. So it's interesting that Jesus used not interesting and inst- instructive and, and telling that he used two, uh, things, salt and light that have that potential to overcome and it's a reminder that he, that when we are living on our identity and again as you said Aaron it's so important we start with identity that has to come first understanding the changes wrought by the gospel in us is how we can live changes through us it's how we become that salt and light but we have the power by the holy spirit to penetrate our cultures our lands the darkness everything through the power of the gospel. So it, it's really a beautiful picture that begins this sermon. So then we get to the next portion, starting in verses 17 and going through 48 of chapter 5, which is one of my favorite parts of this favorite passage. And it is where Jesus looks at the Old Testament and says, you know, you've, you've heard it say, do not murder, but I say to you, do not hate. And so he, he interacts with several different Old Testament laws And it seems like he changes them. It seems like he says, yeah, but. And so the question is often asked, is Jesus rejecting the Old Testament here? And the answer is, is no, he is not. Um, We know this. Why? One, clearly because he says so. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Um, He was perfectly obedient. That's why he has perfect righteousness that is imputed to us in salvation. So we know he did not reject the Old Testament, disobey it or change it or alter it. What he did was he wanted to show that he brought it to its fulfillment and he wanted to establish a greater depth than the Old Testament. So if you think about that section, for example, and and the murder hate is, is a good one. Murder is an act of the hands. And you and well, I, I can't speak for you. I, I hope I could, but I know I've never murdered anybody. I've never physically taken anybody's life. And so as far it's as easy. I know, I haven't. Okay, well, that's good. I, I, that, I think that the government would have found out by now with all the background <laughs> checks I've had to do. 
So that's an easy one to look at the commandments and say, oh, well, that one I've got pegged, right? Let me just move on to the next. I, I've got that one. Clearly, I'm obedient there. Get a gold star. But what Jesus says is, no, 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 you can't think that way. Because if you hate it in your heart, if you've hated in your heart, you have murdered somebody in your heart and you're a sinner. Now we all stand guilty because I've hated. And so what Jesus does is he raises the bar. He does not lower it. So if we want to accuse Jesus of anything regarding to the Old Testament law, it's actually holding his followers to a higher standard mm -hmm. rather than a lower standard or changing the standard. Right. And so this is really important that we understand this. And also the times that it does seem like Jesus is a little more directly contradicting something. It's not the Old Testament law. It's the Pharisees' additional rules and regulations they placed on top of the law. It's their interpretation. So again, we talked about this on other episodes. We see this in some of the works of Jesus, his healings on the Sabbath, where Jesus will make mud, for example. He'll spit in, in, in some dirt, make mud, and they accuse him of work. That's not breaking the law. That's breaking their understanding of the law, their additional rules and regulations. So did Jesus break the Old Testament or reject the Old Testament? Not at all. No, no. And um, one of the things that we should also recognize is that with um, Jesus's deepening of the law as well, we actually even see that in the Ten Commandments themselves. And so we get the hint of that. So think, for example, the first commandment is, um, is that you'll have no other gods before me. There's only one God, you worship him by him alone, and that's it. It's a good command. <laughs> um, it's an important command. You also have, as you go through the list, you know, you come to do not steal. And then you get to do not covet. And those two go those two partner together. And actually, and they all and they tie to the and they tie to the first one too. Because if you're if in order to steal something, you have to desire it. You desire something that isn't yours to have. Um, and, in, and in that instance, if you're acting on that, what, what that thing is, is functionally, it is your God. And so yeah. those are, those are, that's, so Jesus is really acting within the framework that God has already given here. Um, if, we're, if we're reading even the, even the Ten Commandments appropriately. But that leads into, and you know, clearly we know from uh, how the Pharisees interpreted the law that they were not quite in uh, quite in line um, with God's intent in in every aspect. But we also see as Jesus continues in his ministry, and even in this even in this discourse, his rejection and his contrasting of their approach to God's commands is a recurring theme even in this. And so we see that, especially in um, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about how to fast, pray, and give, and things like this. And we need to ask, why does he talk about these things the way that he does? Because he says, when you when you pray, don't make a show of it. Don't, and he says, like the hypocrites do. And when you fast, don't, um, you know, don't walk around and moan and groan. When you, when you give, don't, um, don't be showy about that either. Don't let your right hand know what the left hand is doing. What he's doing here is he is contrasting the intent with the hypocrisy of the, of the religious leaders 
who did make a show of long prayers and of how much and what they gave. And Jesus elsewhere rebukes them for tithing from their spice racks, but neglecting the greater matters of the law. And also running around grumbling and groaning about how a sandwich would really go great in their coffee whenever they're fasting. <laughs> um, and, and so when we get to these, one of the natural overreactions we have, because we are not rational people by and large we are people of extremes so the question that we naturally ask in our overreaction is is it wrong to pray publicly the answer is no it is not wrong to play to pray publicly what's wrong is to showboat when you pray and so think about um think about how like the words that you use when you pray remember prayer is is ultimately a conversation and so there should be a there should be a certain reverence and respect in your language but it shouldn't be that significantly different than how you would talk to another person and because god is a person god's a personal god And he wants to hear from us. And he knows what's going on in our in our heads and our hearts anyway. So just use those words. Um, now, and, and the same thing. Is it wrong to talk about fasting? Again, no, it's not. It's how you talk about those things. So you can talk about the fact that it's like, you know what? Fasting is a helpful practice. Here's why I do it. Um, here's what that looks like for me. You don't have to be prescriptive about it. Um, but it's a way to, but that's a way to talk about it. And same with giving. It's not wrong to, it's not wrong to talk about giving. What's wrong is, is to make a show of any of these things. What's wrong is using what we do in these respects, in these disciplines that exist, um, to use them as a show of self-righteousness to say, well, look how much I give. Look how often I fast. Look at how great my prayers are. And I think that's the key right there. Uh, you know, if you just kind of want to boil it down is, is who are you drawing attention to yourself or to God? Mm-hmm. And these spiritual disciplines are intended to draw attention, our attention and perhaps the attention of others to God. When we pray, we're drawn to him. We, we're pursuing his heartbeat in prayer. When we fast, it is so that we can put aside uh, even common, even good distractions like eating and focus more clearly on Christ. So again, tension's drawn there. When we give, we give so that we might be part of what God is doing, trusting what we give for his purposes and letting go and so forth. So all these disciplines are, are designed that way. And that's what Jesus is saying, but we can, we can turn them around so easily. And when you're focusing on you, look how good I am. Look at how formal my prayers are. Look at, you know, how I just kind of go on and on and on and use lots of words and so forth. Look how, aren't I godly? Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're not. Um, you're a hypocrite. You're drawing attention to yourself and you're using God as your prop. Uh, you know, when I fast, the same thing. Look at me. Look, look how hungry I look. Um, look how weak I look. I've been, I've been fasting for so long. And the intention is you want people to say, man, Brian, you're just spiritual. You're God. I don't know how you do it. You know, that's what I think every time I talk to you. I, I, yeah, that's a total hypothetical because I don't know if anybody's ever thought that. <laughs> but that's that's kind of, you know, Jesus, all right, you want your reward? You, you have it in full. That, that's what you have. You have people's attention, but you don't have God's. So all of these, it's it's where are you putting the focus? Are you putting it rightly on, on God? Or are you putting it wrongly on yourself? That's kind of a way to kind of boil those down. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and so, of course, the, the next thing that we, we should be considering as well um, is, is really what does, what does chapter 7 teach us? And while we're skip again, while we are not going to talk about the, the do not judge, um, do not judge lest you be judged um, in the, you know, King James-y paraphrase, um, but, um, but, you know, judge with right judgment, <laughs> um, you know, the, the verse that people often forget. Um, instead, what we what we need to do when we look at at chapter seven is we need to to look at and see how does this how does this chapter ultimately point us to the gospel, and we see that very explicitly in verses thirteen through twenty seven in this chapter. In addition to the concluding verses, which remind us that which have the have the crowd's reaction of saying, "Man." He, Jesus doesn't teach like other people. He teaches yeah. as one who has authority because he does. Um, but what we see in, um, in verses 13 through 27, um, after Jesus has said all of these things about what it means to be a disciple, what it looks like to live, um, live a life as a disciple, um, he, is, he ultimately tells people to make a choice. He says, "How how do you plan to enter the king kingdom? The kingdom, there's only one way. You can enter through the narrow gate. You can enter enter through the. Um, this is it. This is the way. There's one way in, and this is it. And then he says, and then he says, make a choice. He says, what's your foundation going to be? Is it going to be? Is it going? Is your life going to be one that is built on, um, uh, like a like a house that's built on a foundation of rock? And so when the storms come and the winds blow, it it stands. Or is your life going to be built on a foundation of sand? And so when the storms come and the rains come, and the winds come, um, you know, it falls down and collapses. So, what he's saying is, is there's one hope for you. And it's not, and it's not your attempts at self righteousness. It's not the self righteous, um, self justifying measure of measure of uh, measure that the Pharisees give. It's this. Yeah. Yeah, I think another lens where you see the gospel throughout this sermon is really it, it's it's Christ's kingdom. Uh, agenda on display. I mean, you think about the order that we talked about that you first encounter who is a disciple, the identity, and then the impact. Well, that's a, a good way to summarize what Jesus is about doing is he's about establishing his perfect kingdom that is still coming. And that kingdom will be one where people are marked by the gospel. They are changed in new identity because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in light of that change, they're living differently. That change internally carries over externally to how we live, which not only changes our own lives, but also the culture around us, the community of faith around us. And so that's what Jesus is describing here. He says, you want to think about what the kingdom is. It's here's who will inhabit the kingdom. Here are the marks of, of these people. And here's some things that you will see happening. You will see true generosity. You will see selflessness instead of selfishness. You will see these things uh, marking uh, everyday life in the kingdom. So it is, a, it is a great passage pointing us toward the hope of the gospel today, but also what the gospel is going to bring about 
tomorrow, figurative tomorrow, when Christ returns and establishes his perfect kingdom. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, that leads to our our response to this. So let's thinking let's think about how we approach discipling someone else as we study this passage together. Um, there are a couple of big ideas that we see here. Um, the first, and the first is um, that we ought not treat the Sermon on the Mount as though it is a new law. And so, one thing we do have to remember is that Jesus does give commands in this discourse. And those commands are ones that we are expected to obey. We'll get to that in a minute. But don't forget how the sermon starts. It starts with the Beatitudes. It starts with this declaration of of who is blessed. And so a a great way to think about it, a simple way to think about it, is to remember that just just as as it does in all of life, in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, Grace comes before the demands. So God's grace to his people comes before he issues commands. And so we see that in the we see that in the new in uh, the lead up to the to the Ten Commandments as well. God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt. Therefore, live like this. Here he's saying, My people are blessed. This is who they are. Therefore, live like this if you're one of them. So yeah. that's and, um, so we we say that because we want to help people understand Christ, uh, not just understand Christ, but understand who they are in Christ, that they are blessed. They're someone to whom yeah. the kingdom belongs because of Jesus before we get into telling them what to do because if we lead with commands or um or even challenges um that start with jesus teaching on adultery for example or on murder um i mean we've all seen videos of you know evangelism techniques that 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 lead with those kind of things ultimately here's what we do we risk raising up another generation of pharisees who are all doing who are doing all that they can to earn a righteousness that can only be given to them and so we set them up to fail. Yeah. And that's the thing. We, we want our people to understand when they look in the mirror and think of themselves spiritually, we want them thinking of their identity. We want them understanding that they are adopted children of God because of the work of Christ. Um, and, and really just delighting in that truth more than looking in the mirror and thinking, well, I'm, I'm somebody who gives financially the right way. I'm somebody who prays the right way. I don't, I'm not a hypocrite. You know, all these, these, these commands. And again, as we're going to talk about, they're important. We don't want to minimize that. But primarily, I don't want somebody I'm discipling to think of himself or herself through that lens of their behavior first and foremost. I want them always marveling in the identity brought up by the gospel that fuels that behavior and that's the second part that the balance we can't make the mistake of going too far the other way and saying well you're adopted you're a child of god therefore just go ahead and live your life however you want um you're never going to be forsaken and so forth you you will not lose your salvation so just live as you want that's not understanding the the truth of the gospel either these are commands not advice uh as we've often hear heard it's, it's commands not suggestions 
Um, and so we have to understand that that when when Jesus tells us to do these things, we are obligated to do them. However, we have to be careful to understand and fight for this, that the obligation becomes secondary to the privilege. Mm-hmm. That the desire of the heart wrought on by the change inside of me drives me to want to do these things. So the obligation almost becomes moot. It's like, you know, I don't need to know I have to do this because I want to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's what we want to help our people understand. But there will be times when our wants will fail us, when we want to be disobedient, when we want to be selfish, when we want to be self-righteous. And that's where we have to cling to these commands as commands and say, no, no, I do it. And in my estimation, often what happens is by being obedient in these commands, it re-energizes our heart and gets us in the right place again and gets us back on the right path. Yeah. So we need to take these commands seriously. We need to help our, our disciples take these commands seriously. Brian, that's a good place for us to wrap that conversation, this part of our conversation on. In fact, it's probably a good place for us to wrap the whole conversation. So thanks for for chatting today. And uh, of course, thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. Oh,